Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP support of you podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Amanda Redfern. Remember, these podcasts are for educational purposes only and not to diagnose that weird thing on your friend's eye. Yeah, or your own eye. Or anyone's eye, really. Uh, I mean, sometimes you self-diagnose. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, but we're not like encouraging or recommending that you should seek the care of a licensed and professional, medical professional. Each week we take a high-yield <laughs> topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Amanda? Well, why don't we start out with a case and you tell me what we're talking about this week. Uh-oh. So, recently we saw a 55-year-old man who presented with painless vision loss in his left eye. So, he actually first noticed a smudge in his vision and then he checked both eyes individually and he was able to figure out that it was just in his left eye and not just in his left eye but the bottom part of his left eye otherwise he's had no other associated symptoms in terms of his past medical history he's been very healthy his whole life he was very proud of this hasn't seen very many doctors he runs at least one marathon a year um doesn't take any medications no real family history Anything else you'd be curious about on your review of systems? Not really. I'd want to do the exam. I mean, we guess we can talk about GCA, but for the 55-year-old, I'm not that I enthusiastic know. about it. It's one of those things I feel like you're obligated to do, but every time it's a 55-year-old man, you're like, mm, let's just run through this quickly. Yeah. But I'm not yeah. saying that it's not worth doing, to be clear. But usually when we think about GCA, we think about little old ladies. And so if you had a little old lady in your office with some weird unexplained vision loss, you would definitely want to ask your basic review of systems, which would be? Scalp tenderness, jaw claudication, fevers, chills, myalgias. I'm probably forgetting something. They can have a temporal headache. They can have joint pain, particularly in their hip girdle or in their shoulders related to PMR, which is associated with GCA. And sometimes when you're asking to get at the chewing question, I usually ask them if I gave you a piece of steak, could you chew it? Oh, it works most of the time, unless you're vegetarian, and then it's just offensive. But <laughs> <laughs> what, else, what else would you pick? What's like a tough vegetarian food? Like a large mushroom, well cooked. Portobello. You know, like this tough chew. Yeah, like a portobello. That's that's what those are. The ones that kind of look like a burger. You know, like the big big caps. Like a Shake Shack. Kind of mm. Like a, like the Shake Shack. Um, <laughs> yeah. What what do they call them there? The shroom burger, right? Yeah. Yeah. Last time you had a Shake Shack shroom burger, <laughs> we get no uh, no financial disclosures, by the way. <laughs> So I like that because oftentimes people like to tell you about their dental pain. And mm. so it's more of like, could you physically or, you know, just getting at the claudication aspect of it. Yeah. Okay. Was any of that positive for him? No. It was absolutely oh. negative. <laughs> oh, okay. What about the exam? Okay. So visual acuity was twenty twenty in the right eye, twenty eighty in the left eye. Pupils were symmetric, and there was a 1.5 log unit left relative afferent pupillary defect. What's a log unit? Uh, It is the unit of the filters that we use to measure a relative afferent pupillary defect. So 
The idea is that we have these different graded filters. The higher the number, the darker or denser the filter is. And you basically handicap the good eye until the pupil responses are equal between the two eyes when you're swinging the light back and forth. So you may start out with a pretty obvious left relative afferent pupillary defect, and then you start applying progressively darker filters over the good eye, the right eye, until you no longer see that APD. Cool. And that gives you the measurement of how big the the RPD is. So back to his exam, his color vision was full in the right eye, and he's six out of 13 Ishihara color plates in the left eye. Visual fields were full in the right eye, and then there was inferior depression in the left eye. And then on Amsler testing, it was full or normal in the right eye, and there was a little inferior depression in the left eye. Ocular motility was full, he was ortho, and his IOP was normal. His anterior segment exam was normal. I'm going to stop right there for a moment, because at this point, I think you can see where I'm heading. But based on what you know so far, do you think this is an optic neuropathy or a retinopathy? That's a little tough of a question. I think it's an optic neuropathy, but I don't think we can really completely rule out that without looking at the back of the eye, if it's a retinopathy at this point. What do you think? So at this point, all signs are putting towards an optic neuropathy because you have a relative afferent pupillary defect. You have a dyschromatopsia. Things that would lead me away from retinopathy with the information I've been given so far is the size of the RAPD is Mm. a little bit, it's kind of like a medium size RAPD. And usually when you have a retinal retinopathy causing an RAPD, it's pretty small on the order of like 0.3, 0.6, maybe 0.9. There's actually someone who looked into this and gave ranges for what the expected size of an RAPD would be for different retinal lesions, and they were generally under one. Interesting. That's a very general, there's always exceptions to rules. But they even did it by like each quarter of the retina was worth like a a 0.6 or something. Or if you knocked out the entire macula, it was still like less than one. Hmm. And that's why I always measure the size of RPPs. <laughs> that's a joke. They're always dilated by the time I see them. The <laughs> I was going to say, what type of retina yeah. clinic are you running? Okay, let's, let's move on. Okay. <laughs> the other thing is the amount of the dyschromatopsia. Let's say you had a maculopathy. In general, and, and these are, again, gross generalizations, you would get a little dyschromatopsia if there was something wrong with your macula, but you tend to get more dyschromatopsia from optic neuropathies. It's a kind of general. So all of these are, if you were to follow the general rules about, you know, localizing, this would localize more towards the optic nerve rather than the retina. But obviously, you have to do the rest of the exam to really determine that. Okay. What's what's the rest of the exam look like? So 
he had superior altitudinal swelling of his left optic nerve. There was no pallor, and the cup to disc ratio in his fellow eye was 0.0, and there was no obvious retinopathy. Oh, a cupless disc. Yes, the infamous, right? Yeah. So what's the diagnosis then? What would you call this in this case? At this point, I would call it an anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. It's mm, anterior okay. because it is affecting the optic nerve head, the part that you can see. So if there is swelling, that by definition is anterior. If there was no swelling, it would, and you still thought that it was of an ischemic etiology, then it would be posterior, but I'll get to that in a moment. Ischemic meaning that poor blood flow and then optic neuropathy, obviously some damage to the optic nerve. So when I start thinking about ischemic optic neuropathies, there are just a few broad categories. And the first question is, is it anterior versus posterior? So this goes back to, is the nerve swollen? If yes, that is anterior by definition. We see the most anterior portion of the nerve. And if not, then it's posterior. And then from there, it's really important to differentiate between arteritic and non-arteritic. So arteritic, we typically refer to use arteritic and GCA kind of interchangeably in this case, because by far and away, the most common cause of arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy is giant cell arteritis. But that is not to say that there aren't other arteritic ischemic optic neuropathies. The reason why it's important to make this differentiation is because of the systemic implications of having an arteritic cause versus a non-arteritic cause because GCA can kill you. Mm-hmm. So you really don't want to miss that. Uh, that is the thing that I guess we'll have to worry about this spring when we take oral boards is not killing the patient in our oral boards. Yeah, yeah. And then if it's not arteritic, then it falls into the non-arteritic category, which is what this gentleman had. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Should we start with how can you tell, how did you know that it was not arteritic versus arteritic? Yeah. So very classically in arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, you get a pallid edema. And it can be pretty profound vision loss, like uh, I would say greater than 2200 is the classic, or sorry, not greater, but worse than 2200 vision would be more classic of it. Have I seen otherwise? Yes. So in general, there's worse vision loss. You have the pallid edema. You could have other signs of GCA. So doing a good review of systems to see if they have other symptoms, even ocular symptoms. So in a subset of these patients, GCA can cause uh, cranial neuropathies. So you could have transient episodes of double vision. And we've actually seen that as a GCA presentation alone, where they were just having intermittent episodes of double vision and it was GCA, but there was no vision loss yet. So we caught it before wow. then. But then we've also seen cases, I remember ground rounds at, in our residency, where that was the presenting symptom was intermittent diplopia, and no one realized until they came into the ED for vision loss. 
I'll get to this a yeah. little bit later when we talk about the workup, but having an ESR CRP or getting an ESR CRP is helpful for differentiating too, especially when you're not quite certain. Because let's say mm-hmm. you're not quite certain it's pallid edema, but it is raging edema and they have this vision loss and ischemic optic neuropathy. Getting an ESR and CRP can help you feel more comfortable figuring out, like definitively calling it one way or the other. Right, right. Um, but oh, so and I'm, in your so field, field, there's all sorts of, you can have like retinopathy, choroidopathy. You can see classic things on FA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but, but you think this is N-A-I-O-N, which is a confusing acronym. Yes. Because <laughs> of the A. So what it stands for is non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. That A and N-A-I-O-N doesn't stand for arteritic. It stands for anterior, which is really important. But can you tell us more about it, Amanda? What the heck is this? Why did this happen to our friend in the ED or wherever we saw them? Yeah. As a side note before I say that, I had one patient who very cutely called it neon because it was just too much to say. Yeah, that's, so she, I, I, I think it's okay. I'm I okay think it's neon. great. Ne- neon? Neon? My husband said I should start a movement, and I said I can't do that because I will get laughed out of my fellowship. Nah, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cool. let's start out with the pathophysiology of this. From what we understand of NAION, it is basically a compartment syndrome. There is some sort of primary trigger that is probably an acute hyperperfusion event in the vascular networks around the optic nerve, so in the posterior ciliary arteries. And this insult leads to optic disc edema. And then that edema, as you swell, especially if you have a coupless disc or coupless nerve, um, there's not much place for that swelling to go. So then that starts to cause compression and that compression against the lamina cribrosa at the optic nerve head leads to inflammation and impairment of axoplasmic flow and impairment of the capillary perfusion. So eventually what you get is axonal degeneration and loss of your retinal ganglion cells through apoptosis. Um, And it's kind of a sad thing. I had mentioned that his was altitudinal, and we often see that, like an altitudinal, that goes with an altitudinal visual field defect. So they can, you can get the segmental swelling, but sometimes the swelling just keeps propagating itself, and then it just goes all the way around the nerve. So you may see just half of the nerve swollen, or you may just see it work its way all the way around the nerve. And this is part of the reason why, in the beginning, Sometimes these patients have a, just a little bit of vision loss, and then it just gets progressively worse over the first few days to week or so hmm. um, because that swelling is just not getting better. It's propagating and causing more swelling and more inflammation and cutting itself off. So it sounds like a pretty vicious cycle, huh? Like the nerve, get, the artery gets choked off, causes edema. The edema chokes off the nerve more. That causes more edema, like back and forth, back and forth. Is that why this happens? Yeah. So that is the thought of why this happens or how it happens. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it as Mm -hmm. a compartment syndrome, then when you start to look at what the risk factors are, it makes sense that the main risk factor is a disc at risk. 
is a cupless nerve or a nerve with a very small cup to disc ratio because this is about real estate, right? So right. by far and away, when I talk to patients about it, they're often concerned, like, what did I do? Most of the times I reassure them, like, you were born this way. You just so happen to have a normal nerve with just a little bit of crowding and it puts you at risk for this. The other risk factors that go along with this, if you go back to the pathophysiology of it started with some sort of insult, like an ischemic insult, then we're talking about the general risk factors for ischemia. So hypertension in like 50% of these patients and diabetes in about 25% of these patients. Other risk factors are basically your standard vasculopathic risk factors. So hypercholesterolemia, stroke, ischemic heart disease, tobacco use, systemic atherosclerosis, and obstructive sleep apnea. That seems like one of the big ones too. Like that's the one I try to remember is well, smoking for everyone, but like sleep apnea is actually sort of modifiable. I mean, I know like high blood pressure and everything else is too, but like sleep apnea is like something that could be undiscovered in a patient that hasn't been acted on. So that's one I like to try to remember. Actually, a lot of these can be undiscovered as I've found out. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no, yeah. I'm perfectly healthy. I'm like, well, can you explain your blood pressure today, sir? Yeah, yeah. Or ma'am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll get into this in the workup when we get there. But yes, a lot of these are can be undiscovered. So just because they don't have a history of it doesn't mean they don't have it. The presentation is kind of like this patient, painless vision loss in one eye. Classically, it's upon awakening. So actually, Ben, why might it be mm. more common to just wake up with this painless vision loss? So the hand waving I've understood is that at night, your mean arterial pressure is lower. So there's that kind of relative hypoperfusion at night, and that might set up this cascade. Yeah, that's my understanding too. So in terms of exam, it's decreased vision. Usually it's better than 2200, as I alluded to earlier when we're talking about the difference between this and arteritic causes. There should be a relative afferent pupillary defect. It can be subtle. Because not every case is very bad. Sometimes they have just the small little arcuate defect from it, and their central visual acuity is preserved. So catching or seeing the RAPD can be really hard in someone who's still like 20-20 and only has a like small arcuate defect. But there should be a visual field defect. They could have dyschromatopsia. It really depends on the severity. Um, you can also do red desaturation when it's subtle. And then optic, optic oh, nerve edema in the affected eye with a disc at risk in the fellow eye. What about the color? I thought someone told me optic neuropathies cause pale nerves. Well, why wouldn't you see a pale nerve here? Well, it just happened. So we see pallor as the nerve atrophies. And that is a process that takes time. And that amount of time it takes depends on the the location of the injury relative to the part that we can see. But in general, I would expect it to be four to six weeks for you to start to develop pallor that we can actually appreciate. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I, I see this patient in the ED. What should I try to set up for the patient? Do I just send them home? Like what, 
what other tests should I do for this patient? Well, we just talked about what they could have. So we got to make sure mm-hmm. we know what their health status is because mm-hmm. it doesn't just affect their eyes. It just, it does affect the rest of their body too. So I would get basic labs that include a CBC, a CMP, an A1C lipid panel, and then making sure that they have a primary care provider too, especially for if they find out they have diabetes, they need someone to go manage that because I don't think Ben's going to manage their diabetes. I'm not going to be very good at it. (laughs) I had mentioned earlier getting an ESR and CRP. I basically get an ESR CRP for anyone over 50. It's because you're specifically using that to look for A-A-I-O-N as opposed to N-A-I-O-N. Is that right? Yes. So I would like to rule out A-A-I-O-N by getting an ESR and CRP, which if they're normal is fantastic. Everybody sleeps well at night. If they're abnormal, then you have to sit there and figure out, do they have GCA or some other thing that I'm missing that could cause this? Yeah, which is a lot of things, right? Like rheumatologic conditions or like cancer or they have like colitis or something. Their ESR CRP could be high. So, right. But what is, I hear what you're saying, when it's negative, then it's like, we good. Because NAI1 by itself shouldn't. Exactly. It will not couple things. Be careful about the CRP because CRPs are pretty variable in what the normal range is depending on which CRP lab test you do. So always be cognizant of that. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a really, basically one of the key things in this workup is if you have painless optic nerve swelling with vision loss, then our main job is to make sure it's not AAION and that it really is NAION. Is that kind of what guides, as well as figuring what if they have, you know, if they are otherwise systemically healthy, if they have NAION? Yeah, those are the- two very good guiding principles in managing these patients. Another yeah. one that my one of my attendings does for everyone who comes in with a swollen nerve is get a syphilis test. Hmm. I would say that is a very specific practice pattern. Not everyone does that, but it is an interesting thought, and it uh, is positive more times than you think it is yeah it is on the rise like in especially in certain parts of the country yeah you know i just saw a patient who had asymptomatic bilateral optic disc edema that was noted when they went to go get a lasik evaluation by the way they still got the lasik done the lasik surgeon (laughs) saw the edema still did the lasik surgery they came to us later and we're like oh well we don't know really what's causing this, and we did a bunch of tests. They had syphilis, but they still got LASIK. Like I need when to look you that up. when you laser will aerosolize the spirochetes. Hmm. Oh, coming back to the AION thing. Do you have any? We we already talked about them, but do you want to go again over red flags that would make you weigh more towards AION, that arteritic ischemic mm-hmm. anterior ischemic neuropathy, over NAION? What red flags do you look for? So first is history and doing that GCA review of systems and if anything comes up positive. Pallid disc swelling, like we've talked about several times, elevated ESR, CRP, or, emphasis on the or, CRP, transient diplopia prior to the vision loss, no disc at risk. So if they have a cup to disc ratio of 0.3, you should be a little suspicious of that in the fellow eye. They have retinopathy or choridopathy. 
if they have thrombocytosis on their CBC or if they had bilateral vision loss. Other considerations would be visual acuity that is worse than 2200 or older age. So remember when I said I usually think of it more in the little old ladies. The mean age for AAION is around 70 years old. And then there's a female predominance. So, you know, I think it's not unreasonable to get fluorescein angiographies on a lot of these patients just to look for that retinopathy choroidopathy. And we certainly do a fair number of fluorescein angiograms if there is any question that someone might have GCA because that can be helpful. Okay, so the big question is imaging. Yeah. Or a big question remaining is imaging. Is this necessary or not? And the you mean head, is, like head imaging, right? Yeah, like head imaging. Okay, yeah. Not necessary in straightforward cases, but useful to rule out compressive or inflammatory optic neuropathies. I will say in the beginning, I felt like I wanted to image everybody just to be certain, like, what if I'm missing something? And as it turns out, I did, uh, one person did get an image and had this large arachnoid cyst. That was like squishing the braid, I swear, on the same side that she had the uh, NAON. And I thought it had to be like, this has to be compressive from the cyst. And this ends up being the problem with ordering imaging and finding things that are incidental and not at all related. (laughs) There's me thinking, oh, gosh, she needs neurosurgery. And no, she just she's always had that. And she had NAON. So. As with anything in medicine, when it comes to imaging, you open yourself up to incidentalomas, and you need to know what you're looking for and put things in context. That makes sense. So I think you saying that it's mainly look for compressive or inflammatory ideologies is really helpful. Um, What would make you suspect more of an inflammatory like optic neuritis compared to an AION? Pain. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) Very simple. (laughs) Very, very simple. Uh, NAION should not be painful. So if they are yeah. having pain with eye movements being classic, but, you know, I've also seen optic neuritis with weird versions of eye pain complaints, that would be yeah. typical of NAON and worth looking up. Or if we're seeing someone way after the fact, and it's hard to tell if they have the sudden vision loss, which NAON should be versus like a slow progressive vision loss, I'd If there's any concern for a slowly progressive vision loss, I'd like to see the head imaging. Okay, what if you have a patient that has, like, all the things you expect for an NIO1, but they're pretty young, like, you know, under 30 or something. What do you do different? I would definitely initiate a broader workup and consider other etiologies because it takes decades to develop these vasculopathic risk factors, and then damage from these diseases to your blood vessels. So if you're young, you haven't had that time. And then I start to look for other things that would put you at risk. By far and away, a common cause, I think the most common cause of NAON in the young is optic nerve drusen. Because it also chokes up the optic nerve head, is exactly. that the idea? Yeah. Got it. So... You can do different things to help you determine whether they have drusen. I know a big thing on off the questions is doing a an ultrasound to look for the drusen. Mm-hmm. In really calcified drusen, you would see it on a CT scan. 
I wouldn't CT scan someone to determine whether they have drusen. I'll put it that <laughs> way. Lot, but yeah. every now and then, I've I've actually gotten a referral from a radiologist because they found drusen on a CT scan. Oh, cool. And then what we commonly do here is do an optic nerve OCT scan. Basically, it takes slices of the optic nerve like you would in the macula and you can see drusen, like these little round things that shadow. You have to be mm. careful to look at the onfos image to make sure you're not looking at a blood vessel that is round and shadowing, but you can actually yeah. see drusen or you can see these things that may be precursor to drusens that we call foams. Peripapillary hyperreflective ovoid mass-like structures. Foams. Cool, cool, cool. That's what it yeah. stands for. Of course it does. <laughs> You can also consider a hypercoagulability workup. Because it's a vascular problem. Yeah. So I would do a hypercoag workup in someone who was young. Oh, and then infectious and inflammatory workup. Yeah, like the syphilis like that you were talking about. That could be a reasonable yeah. explanation, right? Okay. Yeah. What is going to happen to our 55-year-old friend who you introduced to us with NAION? What's her prognosis? So the prognosis, unfortunately, is not good because there's nothing you can really do about it. According to the ischemic optic neuropathy decompression trial, about 43% of patients with a visual acuity of 2064 or worse regained at least three lines of visual acuity, which is hopeful, right? So that's almost half of the people will get improvement on the Snellen chart. But that means another half with decreased vision aren't getting better, and you just don't know. And there's nothing you can do to help them along that path. It's just a wait-and-see kind of thing. What was the ischemic optic neuropathy decompression trial? What do they do? They try to surgically decompress that optic nerve swelling. Oh, my. They just go in there. We'll get into a little bit of the crazy things people have tried. Okay. Let's, uh, but well, yeah, let let's, me finish let's off prognosis. So there's a 15% chance over five years of it happening again in the fellow eye and a less than mm. 5% chance of it happening in the same eye. Yeah. So basically, there's not much we can do after the fact. So the best treatment is prevention. There is little evidence to support any particular therapy, but I'm going to talk about one that is controversial and is more commonly seen. So the best evidence for treatment was done by Hayray and Zimmerman, where they looked at 613 consecutive patients with NAON, and they gave some of them steroids and some of them not. It was complete voluntary basis. The patients were given the choice if they wanted to try the steroids or not to help with their vision. And at six months, 69.8% of the treated eyes with an initial visual acuity of 2070 or worse and seen within two weeks of onset in the treated group had a visual acuity of improvement as opposed to only 40.5% of untreated eyes. So that's 69.8% versus 40.5%. And again, a very narrow spectrum. These are people 2070 or worse who were seen within two weeks of onset of symptoms. The visual field defects also improved 40.1% versus 24.5% in untreated eyes. Hmm. So do you give people systemic corticosteroids? It's, there's a great paper back and forth between, I believe, Valerie Buse and 
Andy Lee, where they debate whether it is a sound medical thing to do and how you coach or talk to patients about it. And it's very difficult because there's not strong evidence, but where do all of our treatments start out as? It's kind of this little bit of evidence and then it leads to a clinical trial. But in our case, it's hard to do a randomized clinical trial in something that doesn't happen very often. And then we're talking about a patient population where a quarter of them have diabetes and you give them steroids. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. are you doing more harm than good in someone that you can't guarantee this is actually going to work or not? So I think Andy Lee had advocated for just having a really open discussion with the patient about what we know and what we don't know and do you want to give it a try. Valerie Buse had this opinion of, you know, we have to be careful and recognize the limitations of evidence that we have and also convey that to our patients. Even in our best intentions of trying to give the most informed consent, they don't have the medical background to understand everything that we're talking about and the implications of that. So it was very, I highly recommend the article, but to answer your question, I've done it and I've not done it. Gotcha. Well, you know, you talked about systemic side effects, uh, systemic steroids. Could you just put it directly in the eye? People have tried it. So one study showed some improvement with intravitreal tramcinolone. There was some questioning of whether this was valid, though, because even though they showed that they had improvement in swelling, which is, I mean, steroids, of course, but we don't care about swelling so much as the visual outcome. The visual outcome improved with regard to Snellen visual acuity, but then there was no change in the visual fields, suggesting Mm -hmm. that the patients had just developed a new refixation strategy and they didn't actually Mm -hmm. improve their vision. So there's some question of the validity of that, those conclusions. And then I had mentioned earlier the ischemic optic nerve decompression trial. So that was a large multicenter prospective treatment trial for NAON, and there was no benefit from surgical intervention. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But a lot of people got surgery to decompress their optic nerve. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it was worth finding out if it worked I mean, or not. if you think that it's a compartment syndrome, I think the natural thing is, well, can we relieve that pressure? Other things that have been tried, antiplatelet agents like aspirin, anticoagulants, pressors, vasodilators, anti-VEGF injections, transvitreal optic neurotomies. Hmm. <laughs> that would be you going through there, I believe. <laughs> Not a routine thing I've seen in our ORs, but you know. Or vitrectomy and release of epipapillary vitreous traction, hyperbaric <laughs> oxygen, transcorneal electrical stimulation. Like it runs the gamut of things that have been tried, yeah. but there is no great evidence for any of these things. Yeah. I think BCSC basically says there's no active treatment, there's just preventative treatment. Is that right? Yeah. So I think this is all beyond what we need to know for boards or whatever. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's actually news to me that even that one can trial systemic corticosteroids for patients with NAON. So I, that feels like that's the biggest takeaway, right? That yeah. um, you can, like, you know, if they fit this criteria, then you can consider that, like, one treatment for NAON and, you know, weigh the risks and benefits with each, each individual patient. Yep. And everything else is kind of meh. <laughs> everything else is pretty meh. <laughs> But what about prevention? Because you told me 
just a bit ago that 15% of patients will have an episode in their other eye, which is quite high. Is there anything that patients can do to try to prevent that? I'm going to start with the big thing. You had mentioned sleep apnea before. And sleep apnea is a big area where you can make a difference in someone's overall health and then preventing this happening in the other eye. In a retrospective chart review, the two top risk factors for sequential NAON were optic distrusion, which is not modifiable, and noncompliance with CPAP in patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea. So, I mean, you'd be noncompliant or if you're undiagnosed, that's basically the same as being noncompliant with your CPAP, right? So it's right. really important to get these people a sleep study. Everybody gets a sleep study if they don't know their OSA status. And then from there, they need to be plugged in with a PCP who can take those results and get them the CPAP if they are positive. So mm. that is like the big thing. Like put that in your dot phrase, order sleep study. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. Again, working with a PCP on controlling hypertension, diabetes, other risk factors. And then um, there is some evidence to suggest that aspirin decreases the risk of sequential NAON, but this is based on one study that showed decreased incidence. It's, there are other studies that did not show this benefit, so I wouldn't say there is really strong evidence for this. If it were me personally, I mentioned this because I would take a baby aspirin mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the chance that it might prevent this from happening in my other eye because vision is very precious. Right. But that's right. A, I'm a pretty healthy person. I don't have much to worry about with taking a baby aspirin. So, Okay. Two other questions that I think come up sometimes. What about, uh, are there any medications you would recommend someone not take to try to prevent an AI one? Oh, yeah. Sildenafil. So we always ask patients, do you take sildenafil or tadalafil, or, which is, I believe, Cialis or any of these medications? Because mm. if they do, you need to counsel them on not doing that because you don't want them to have more hyperfusion to their optic nerve. The other big category is antihypertensives. A lot of these patients, like I said, have hypertension. So it matters when you take your blood pressure medications. So if they're taking them at night, we usually ask them to take it in the morning as long as there's no other reason the PCP had them taking it at night. And for the vast majority of them, they just arbitrarily chose which time of day because it's a once-a-day medication. So we just say, can you just take it in the morning? I think 2200 after the cataract surgery. Right. Right, right, right. I think that's an AON. Do you have anything else you wanted to mention? Oh, what about altitude? Altitude. I don't know. We talk about altitude. Do you believe in that? I don't really believe in that at this time. Ask me uh -huh. at the end of the year and see if my opinion has changed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I think more of an altitude with relation to people with IIH. In fact, we're talking about mm -hmm. looking at the incidence of IH in higher altitude versus somewhere at sea level. Oh, right, because you're in, like, Salt Lake Yeah. City. How interesting. How interesting. Well, I guess that's for another episode. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with the number four. And if if you like support the podcast and a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found our podcast is extremely helpful. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.